0: Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, and we will begin in verse 40 and God willing work our way through verse 56 this morning. A wonderful, incredible passage demonstrating the great power and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do invite you, as I do most Sundays, to open your Bible and turn uh, to Luke chapter 8. You'll find that on page 866. In the Pew Bible in front of you, um, I think it will be helpful. We're just going to work our 17 verses just one by one, and it will help you to stay engaged and to consider that what we're hearing is the Word of God explained and applied to our lives if God's Word is open before you. And so you would do well, I think, to open God's Word to Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. Hear now the Word of God. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, He implored Him to come to His house, for He had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word in which we can set our hearts upon, and We trust, Father, that you have brought us here today to hear from you. We believe that you have given us this, your word, that you might reveal yourself to us. And how great is our need today to know our God, to love our God, and to see his majesty, power, and love displayed through the pages of his scripture. So help us. Come, Holy Spirit, help us. Give us eyes to see and hearts to delight in what You have set before us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful stories of the the Chronicles of Narnia, speaks of a visitor to Narnia named Jill who is wandering and confused and lost and has grown very thirsty. And Jill happens upon a stream which is guarded by a lion named Aslan. Of course, in Lewis's allegories, Aslan is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so Jill watches the lion for a long time as her thirst grows. And she's in conflict in her soul because she's afraid to move towards the lion but afraid to move away from the stream. Lewis writes that Aslan in his golden and wild voice invited saying, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Fearful, Jill hesitated. So the lion asked, are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Will you promise to not do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? Jill asked. I have swallowed kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. I introduce our time this morning with that, I think, a wonderful and beautiful story, powerful story, because it very much reflects what we see going on in this passage before us. See, we're we're introduced to another woman, aren't we, who fears Jesus, but at the same time is also in great need of Jesus. She is clearly aware of His power, but is unsure of His compassion. And so she is in conflict. In fact, we've been studying in our, in our survey through the Gospel of Luke, it was wonderful story after story, especially in chapter 7 and chapter 8, six incredible stories of the power and love of Jesus. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw Jesus' power over disaster, and then that last week over demons, and today we'll see His power over both disease and death. And this text, I think, invites us to gaze upon His power and His authority. But it does more than that. It actually raises another theme for us. The theme of faith. This passage asks us the question in the midst of our hurts and in the midst of hopelessness, will we trust in Christ? When He is painfully late, will we believe in Christ? I hope when we look at this passage you will learn that you can and that you should. And that He is perfectly worthy of our trust, even when we are heartbroken. The first truth I think we learn from this passage is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust because He responds to the heartbroken. We pick up the story in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him for they were all waiting for Him. Remember now that Jesus is returning from the other side of the Sea of Galilee after calming a storm and casting out demons. And He comes and sails back to the uh, to the western side of the sea, back to the Jewish side of the sea. And, and there is a crowd that is welcoming Him. Now, I wonder if he's welcoming them. As I suggested to you, he sailed across the sea to get, uh, it seems to me, a, a little break from ministry. And yet now he comes back across the sea after getting no break from ministry. And there is a crowd welcoming him, receiving him back upon the shore. They're quite different then from the gatherings. Remember them last week who invited Jesus or asked Jesus to leave? This crowd is doing quite the opposite. They want him to come. In fact, Luke tells us there in verse 40 that they have been waiting for for him And so as the apostles row in exhaustion and confusion, they find an army of needy people, perhaps taking a number, getting in line for their time with Jesus. And it is in this noisy and pushy crowd that Christ beaches his boat, and I trust they are all perhaps silenced because of the spectacle to occur in verse 41 as we read, and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. We're introduced to the first character in this story, other than Jesus. His name is Jairus. He is a synagogue ruler, which would be the equivalent of a, one of our lay elders here in the church. Therefore, he would be a, a man of, of some prominence in his faith community. He would be a well-regarded man, a, a well-respected man, perhaps a successful man. And this, this well-regarded man, we find him falling prostrate in the ground, at the feet of this peasant named Jesus. And he's begging him, imploring him. I find that particularly interesting, that a man of of such success and uh, prestige does not come to Jesus and appeal to His worth. He does not enter into some kind of negotiation as if they were peers. He makes no demands upon Jesus. He is simply begging Jesus. He is imploring Jesus, which would have been quite embarrassing to him, especially in this very strong patriarchal culture. It would have been a shock for him to do this. What, therefore, has brought this man to humble himself in such a way? Luke tells us in verse 42, for he had had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. She was dying. See, death is bringing him to his knees. His only daughter, his only child, is on her deathbed. We don't know her disease. We're not told. We're simply told that she does not have much time. That her rescue requires quick and immediate action. We're also told that she's 12. You may not recall when we were in Luke chapter 2 and we saw Jesus at age 12 and we consider what, is, what does that age mean in the Jewish culture. See, at age 12 plus one day, this, this girl would become a woman. She would now be at the age where she could enter into a betrothal she is now at the age where her instruction has has ended. She is now at the age where she is really coming into the prime of her life. It is a, a powerful and wonderful time for her to to come into this age. And yet, rather than celebration and joy, there is great sickness and concern. And this religious leader comes and resi- risks his position, and certainly is hurting his reputation as he begs Jesus. But he doesn't care, does he? Because he loves his daughter. And I trust he's done all he has can for, can for her. He hears Jesus is in town and leaves her on her deathbed with mom and pushes through the crowd and throws himself at Jesus' feet with his face in the dirt and begs for help saying, I, I know there are many needs here. And I know that, that the religious leaders, we and you don't get along very often. But I need your help. My daughter is dying. You are my only hope. You are my last hope. And he appeals to Jesus. Well, we see Jesus' response as we read on in verse 42. And Jesus went. And He goes. He agrees. Because Jesus loves His enemies, as He taught us in Luke chapter 6. And Jesus responds to the brokenhearted. And I simply want to suggest to you that that this simple scene that we see here is an invitation to you and to I that we can go to Jesus in our needs. In a time of greatest need, we ought to come to Jesus. I think it's important to point out, perhaps it's an obvious truth to you, but I think often you and I come into trouble, come into positions of desperation, come into times of great need, and we never go to Jesus. We we try every other option, but we never get on our face. We never cry out. We never roll off the burden to Him. We never verbalize and plead with Him. We exhaust every possibility. We may even complain and grow angry. But we never go to Jesus, even though the Scripture says, cast your cares upon Him. For He cares for you. He goes with Him. He responds to the heartbroken because He comes in faith. I would invite you... Brothers and sisters in Christ, not just to go to Jesus in your needs, but to go to Jesus in faith. This is why Jairus is here. He believed that Jesus could help. Now, notice that that Jairus is not a man of uh, exemplary faith. We have no indication that he's a follower of Jesus, No, no understanding that he might be one of Jesus' disciples. He's probably quite the opposite, but he's heard of Jesus. He's perhaps seen some of his miracles or at least spoken to those who have been healed. And he considers Jesus is his only chance. And he has, if you will, a flicker of faith. He's a He has a smoldering wick of faith. And even that tiny, tiny faith, Jesus welcomes it. Jesus doesn't sit him down and say, listen, before I go and do anything for you, we need to get some things right. You need to understand who I am. You need to get your life right. You you need to to understand the correct theology about me. He doesn't do any of this. He just sees a small flicker of faith and he goes and he responds positively to this man. I want to let you know that no no matter how small your faith is, no matter how weak it might be, Christ will respond to it if you come to him believing that he can act. He invites you to come. He is worthy of your trust because He responds to the heartbroken. But we also see, secondly, that Jesus is worthy of trust because He restores the hurting. You see, as, as they go, they're, they're swarmed by this jostling crowd. I trust many people eager to see another miracle. We notice this in verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him. And so, they're crowding around Him. They're all around and pressing in on Him. Of course, they're in a hurry, aren't they? This must be incredibly hard on Jairus. Almost like a, an ambulance that is stuck in traffic just wanting people to move out of the way so Jesus can come and help. And things are going incredibly slow as the crowd presses in on Him. But things are about to get quite quite a, a good degree worse as Jesus comes to a complete halt because you see there's someone else that is in need of him. Note verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And there's a woman who has this great physical need. She's been bleeding, uh, most likely a, a uterine hemorrhage for 12 years. Chronic chronic disease this I trust would have left her incredibly weak anemic sickly Um, and this has been going on as I mentioned for 12 years remember how old Jairus's daughter is she's 12 years old in other words, for, for every year that Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. For every year of joy that Jairus had with his daughter, this woman has faced agony in this great physical condition. But it's all, not only a physical condition, it's clearly a financial condition. As Luke tells us, she spent every dollar she had on doctors and physicians to heal her. She tried everything and nothing has worked. And so she has this physical ailment, and now she is financially has no resources. But the problem is even more than that. There is a religious problem. She would be considered unclean in this day. She would have, if you will, a perpetual impurity to her. And therefore, she would have no access to the temple. She would not be allowed to come into the synagogue. She would not be allowed to worship with God's people. Her trouble was physical, financial, religious. It was even social because her condition, though physically was not contagious, her ritual impurity was. She can transmute, transmit her, her uncleanness with a touch. And so for 12 years, this woman has been, by God's law, have been has been told she can't touch anyone. 12 years. No hug, no kiss, no holding hands in a time of prayer. Just left to suffer alone and even to compound her problems. It impacted her family without any doubt. This condition would have left her unable to bear children. She would most likely by this time be divorced, according to the Jewish law, if she was ever married at all. In fact, you notice she has no advocate. There's no one, as we've seen at other times in Luke's Gospel, people helping those who have need, friends coming alongside. There's no one helping her. She's spending her own money. She's coming to Christ by herself. No health, no friends, no husband, no children, no church, no hope. But she hears Jesus is in town. And so she has a plan, as we see in verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. See, she does the unthinkable. She's not allowed in a crowd. She's not allowed to touch anyone. She would defile them. So it's understandable why she would do this in secret. Why she would sneak up behind Jesus, conceal herself in the crowd, perhaps thinking, if I could only touch a piece of his garment, if I could only reach out and lay hold of a piece of his clothing, I I might be healed. And she comes and she does and she is. Immediately. She felt it. The flow of blood has stopped. What she has sought for 12 years is obtained in an instant because she reached out in faith and laid hold of Christ. Christ. And she was immediately aware that her body has now been restored through the power of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the unbelievable joy she must have felt in that moment? All of her isolation, all of her shame, all of her agony, all of her hardship is gone in simply one brief moment because she has reached out to Christ. She touched Him. And now that she's healed, she's just going to slip away, isn't she? She's just going to, to walk away and, and go on with her life with no one the wiser, except someone is the wiser. And Jesus asks here what to many seems like a ridiculous question, verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Who, who just touched me? Someone touched me. They don't know what he's talking about. As we read on, it says everyone denied it. When all denied it, everyone saying, no, no, what are you talking about? And eventually, uh, Simon Peter speaks up, who has this unimaginable ability to fill silence with stupidity. And, and, and he comes and he says to Jesus, like, as if Jesus doesn't know, Master, the crowds surround you and, and, and uh, everyone's pressing in on you, right? And they're all, they're all, they're all touching you. Jesus might be thinking, thank you, Simon. What would I do without your brilliance? Um, but, but it, it totally ignoring Simon. He, he doesn't even address, uh, such a statement. He asks a second time, verse 46, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. I've felt it. Power has left me. I've lost power. It's almost like a picture of like a, a power surge and the light's dim for just a moment. And, and Jesus has felt that leave his body as it goes to restore someone else. Um, and so he asks, who, who, who touched me? I wonder if he knows. I, I wonder if he already knows who touched him. I'm not sure, but I, I wonder if it's kind of like... Uh, you know, parents, when you, you walk through the kitchen and, and the cookie jar lid is open, right? And the cookies are gone. And you call all the kids down in front, right? And and there's one kid with crumbs all over the face and chocolate everywhere. And what do you do? You ask a question, right? Who ate the cookies? Right? And and quite often, you know, they all deny it, right? Maybe it was a cookie rapture or something, right? It went right to head. We don't know where it went. What you're doing is you're inviting them to give an opportunity to repent, aren't you? You're inviting them an opportunity to confess what they have done, right? She is totally done with Jesus, but He's not done with her. He wants to draw that faith out of her. He wants to bring that faith out of the shadows, out of hiding, and He invites her to come forward and publicly confess. Who touched me? He asks a second time. And with teary eyes and pounding heart, she emerges from the shadows as we read in verse 47. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came forward. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Notice how she came. She, Luke says she was trying to hide, trying desperately, but realized she couldn't. And so finally, reluctantly, she comes forward and comes forward how? Trembling. Fearful. She's afraid of Jesus. She's afraid of the crowds. Maybe they're going to turn on me when I tell them what has happened. But I think ultimately she's afraid of Jesus. What, what if He's going to reject me? What if, what if He's going to shame me? What if He's going to unheal me? She comes forward trembling and she falls down before Him. You notice that? I don't know if you notice this in Luke 8. There's a lot, a lot of people are falling before Jesus. Right, Jairus fell before Jesus. Remember, uh, the man with legion fell before Jesus. This woman's falling before Jesus. Even, even the storm fell before Jesus. Everyone and everything keeps falling down in front of Jesus. And here she is, falling down, her face in the dirt, at Jesus' feet, trembling, and she confesses two things. One, what she has done. She explains what, why she is here, that she has come to Jesus for healing. She reached out and touched Him. At this, the crowd perhaps would gasp at her, maybe begin to yell at her, certainly draw back from her, this contagious woman. But that's not all she says. She says what has happened to her, as Luke tells us once again in verse 47, that she had been immediately healed. She declares what Jesus has done for her, just as what Jesus wants her to do. I think Jesus clearly wants this woman. If you ask, why does he even bother? Why does he care who touched him? Why is he insisting that she comes forward? It is because Jesus wants to turn her timid faith into a testifying faith. He wants her to declare what God has done in her life. I think this is incredibly important because there are many people who who would prefer to keep what God has done in their life a secret. There are many people who have even come and placed their faith in God for salvation, but for one reason or another would rather keep that to themselves. And some, some reach out to Jesus privately, don't they? But don't want anyone else to know. Clearly that's not good enough for Jesus. Jesus seeks a public testimony of the work of God in your life. And it may not be easy to give that testimony, by the way. You think it was easy for her? Even even the very nature of her problem is incredibly embarrassing. Moreover, she has to come trembling before Jesus. I find it interesting as Jesus sees her tremble, aware of her problem, he doesn't say, "Okay, uh, uh, it's okay. We don't we don't have to do this. You don't have to tell everybody what happened. You, we'll just go talk about this privately." No, Jesus wants her, even in the midst of her fear, to speak about Christ. He calls her forward anyway, and by God's grace, she finds the strength to declare what Jesus has done, and her faith begins to grow. See, he. He wants this. Not just because he wants a testimony. Not just because he wants to be glorified, though he does. But she needs this. He's calling her forward because she needs this for herself. In fact, he wants to give her far more than what she sought from Jesus. As you see in verse 48, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, uh, it's, it's interesting. He says her faith has made her well you notice how weak her faith is? right? She, she's like Jared. She's not a follower of Jesus. She, she's not a disciple of Jesus. And, and it seems to be somewhat of a selfish faith, doesn't it? She, she wants healing, but she doesn't really care about the healer. Sometimes that's where faith starts. We come to Jesus because we want a problem solved. We, want, we need help in a certain situation. And faith often begins there. We reach out to him. To have that problem solved, and what we receive is so much more. As he tells her, go in peace. Not go in health, go in peace. A peace that He has given her, the peace of God that He has given her. I mean, you could just think about what the transformation in her life, by the way. All the scorn and isolation are gone. Perhaps she could get married now, maybe even have children. She could certainly worship with God's people. I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus is doing this because He's standing right by one of the leaders in the synagogue, one of the ruler in the synagogue, and says, Hey, you should expect to see her next Sabbath. You could save a seat for her because she's coming to church. She's going to come and worship with God's people. He's restoring her life. It's this instant, transformation that has taken place in her life because she reached out to Christ and some of you know what that's like don't you I mean some, mo- many of you and I hope, I hope most of you perhaps have come to Christ gradually over the, your life being raised to know him but some of you some of you know what it's like to reach out to Jesus not even knowing what you're reaching out for and he transforms you have you experienced that will you testify to it it's what he's done in my life Man I had no desire for Christ, not even know what I was reaching for, and my life was completely changed. He's changed this woman's life. He's transformed it because of her faith. She finds peace with God. In fact, I love how he addresses her. Do you notice this, what he calls her? See that in verse 48? Daughter. You know how many times Jesus calls someone daughter? One time. It's right here. And we've established, I don't know if you remember, Luke is constantly identifying women that the other gospel writers don't. I think he mentions like two dozen women by name. This woman's not even mentioned by, by name. And, and so the question I think that, that raises is, why her? I mean, of all the women that Jesus is ministering to, why does he look at her and call her daughter? In fact, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this event. It, they're all different details, but they all include this one detail. From the lips of Jesus, he says to her, daughter. Why? Well, you do remember there is another daughter in this story, don't you? There is Jairus' daughter. Well, th- This woman has no Jairus. Right? She has no dad who says, sweetie, wait here. I'm going to go to Jesus and beg him to come and heal you because I love you. She is on her own. She pays her own medical bills. She risks herself to meet Jesus. There is no one to help her. She has been ostracized and cast aside. She doesn't have a Jairus, but she gets a Jesus. You're my daughter now. You're in my family now. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is that we can go to Him with our hearts. I'll remind you that He is on His way, by the, uh, by the way, to, to heal a dying girl. And there are thousands of people at this time who want to see another amazing act. And, and instead, what He does is He stops to give His attention to this woman. Now, just for a moment, I want to consider the difference between Jairus and this woman. Jairus, being a man in a patriarchal society, has all power. This woman has none. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. She is unclean and barred from the synagogue. Jairus is most likely rich. She is certainly poor. She has no social influence or prominence whatsoever. And Jesus gives her his full attention. Jesus treats her like there is no one more important in the world than her. And by the way, he makes the rich, powerful man at the moment of his greatest need wait. Wait. It's almost as if he says to Jairus, you could wait outside for a moment. I have something else to do. And we see this in the gospel. we're constantly seeing pairs in the gospel. We'll find, we'll find a Pharisee and a, and a sinner or a rich and the poor or a citizen and a, and a refugee or, or an illegal immigrant or what we'll find the Jew or the Gentile. And whenever there are pairs, it's almost always that Jesus goes to help the one that we would most likely turn our back on. He always goes to the outsider. He always goes to the marginalized and the, and the messed up. He is drawn to the messed up people in the crowd. That's who Jesus heart goes after you see it doesn't matter what it is that you have done it doesn't matter what you have failed to do it doesn't matter how far you have fallen or how great your need it doesn't matter if your need is physical or spiritual or emotional or relational you ought to know from this passage that you have the attention of Jesus Christ his focus is on you he realizes your pain he knows your circumstance and He loves you in the middle of it with an intensely personal love. And so if you ever find yourself in despair and loneliness, and you say, well, no one understands. I tell you, Jesus Christ understands. And He's committed to you. He's committed to help the marginalized. He's committed to help those who are cast aside. You and I who follow Christ should probably do likewise. We should follow this example, shouldn't we? We should find the people that are, that are outsiders in great need and be ones who minister to them on behalf of Christ. I know some of you currently are seeking to expand your family through adoption. Others of you volunteer at the Pregnancy Support Center and Tree of Life. Some of you are preparing to go back to Eagle Butte next month. Others are praying about how they can engage the orphans in the slums of Ghana. All of this is a test, testimony to the value of life. The value of life that otherwise our our society would disregard, Christ honors. And we need to be like Christ because we, like this woman, have been helped by Him. In fact, even if you're not an outsider, even if you're not hurting, you have something in common with her. Don't you realize this, Christian? You see, she's unclean in her disease, but all of us, at least one time, are unclean in our sin. All of us are unclean at one time in our life before the eyes of a holy God. And that uncleanness, that sin, always leads to suffering, doesn't it? It causes suffering in our life, causes suffering in other people's life, and it ultimately will lead to death. And moreover, it doesn't matter how much we spend or, or what we do, we must reach out to Jesus. Christians, this is a picture of you. I think you would do well to even picture yourself in that story with all your uncleanness and all your defilement and all your idolatry. Can you picture yourself in your mind's eye reaching out to Jesus and touching Him by faith? Just reaching out and grabbing hold of Him because you trust that He is the only one who can help you. And immediately all your defilement is gone. It is all taken off you. And you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The Bible tells us that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has received our sin upon Himself and has given us His righteousness that He may call out to you, My daughter, my son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I long for you to know that peace. I long for you to be able to leave this room today saying, I too am a daughter of God. I too am a son of God. That you might have the new life He would give you. That you must go to Jesus in faith. You must reach out to Him in faith. In fact, I don't know if you observe how different... We already did observe how different Jairus is from this woman. They have one thing in common though, don't they? They're both desperate. They're They're just... at their end. I think oftentimes people will come to church Sunday after Sunday and not reach out to Christ because He has not put them in a place of desperation. You think you might have other options. I tell you, before God ever puts you in that point of desperation, there are no other options. Christ is your only hope for eternal life, your only hope to be reconciled to God, your only hope for ultimate and personal peace if you would reach out and lay hold of Him. We can trust Jesus because He helps the hurting Lastly, consider that Jesus is worthy of our trust because he rescues the hopeless. He rescues the hopeless. Of course, Jesus now is delaying, right? Remember, he's headed somewhere and you could imagine what's going on in Jairus' heart. I trust he was excited when Jesus initially said that he'll come to his house. There's some hope there, but but his soul must have been churning in the fear that he might be too late. I I don't know if I've seen too many movies, but I, I kind of, in my mind's eye, see the clock ticking down, right? And, and he's got the cure in his hand, but will he get there in time? And as he's racing home with Jesus, Jesus stops and says, I need to talk to this woman. We We need to spend some time here. And by this point, Jairus must be beside himself, filled with anxiety and frustration. I trust he's about to freak out. He's about to lose it. In fact, and you understand why, right? There are two illnesses in the story. One we could call chronic. The other we could call urgent or acute. Right? The little girl's problem is acute, right? She's on death door. This woman's problem is chronic. It's severe, there is no doubt, but it has been going on for 12 years. Certainly she could have waited another 30 minutes, couldn't she? Wait another hour for Jesus to heal her. And yet Jesus chooses to stop and to speak with this woman rather than rush to heal this girl. It makes no sense, doesn't it? At least in our understanding, it's irrational. right? If you had an ER doctor and he had two cases, one acute and and one chronic... And he chose to deal with the patient with the chronic problem, letting the one with the acute problem die. We would all unanimously say that is a terrible doctor. In fact, you know what we call that? We call that malpractice. Right? Jesus, Jairus is looking at, watching Jesus in his malpractice. I mean, they, and the apostles understand this too. They must be thinking, what is going on here? I mean, who cares who judged you? Let's go. She's dying. Hurry. But Jesus will not be hurried. And so Jairus pulling on Jesus' sleeve, or perhaps pacing back and forth, is greeted by the news that he dreaded for days, as we see in verse 49. While he was speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. They're too late. Stop bothering Jesus. Now I remind you that this is not some fable to teach a moral lesson. This happened... Can you imagine what must be going on in this man's heart? I mean, I, I just, in studying this passage, try to think about what, what it must have been like to be a dad who lost, I have an 11-year-old daughter, lost a, a daughter. I mean, I just I, I, one of the things I thought about is just not being there, right? Because dad's supposed to be there when that happens. And he's supposed to be rubbing her forehead and, and kissing her hand. He's supposed to be praying for her, right? He's, he's supposed to be saying goodbye to his daughter. And, and no, he's not there. He leaves his wife alone, right? And, and she's crying undoubtedly over her daughter. And she's watching her labor to breathe. And finally, she, she stops breathing. And dad is supposed to be there to be strong, isn't he? Dad's supposed to be there to, to be leaned upon, and he's not there. And it's not because he doesn't love her, but because he does love her, and he's out trying to help her, but he's failed. And this man now, his life has been destroyed. yet at the same time, I trust he is, he is angry. He clearly knows that Jesus can heal. There is evidence right before Him. And He has come to Jesus and He dropped to His knees and He put His face in the dirt and He begged Him and and He's not even asking for Him. And He's asking for His child. Won't you come and help my child? And I went through all of this. I pushed through the crowd, fell on my face, begged you to come and help a 12-year-old girl and what I get is a a dead daughter. And, And He must be thinking, what kind of man are you? You could have healed her. Why wouldn't you come? And it's at that point that Jesus looks at him and says, You must believe in me. Look in verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. You see, Jesus is teaching him and you and I that we are to believe in Christ when the delays of life are painful. There is a reason these two stories are put together. In fact, I wonder if this delay is actually purposeful. That Jesus is actually waiting for this news to happen. Because he not only want to bring this woman's faith out of hiding, he wants to help Jairus have a far more robust faith, have a far greater understanding of who Jesus is. He wants to help Jairus' faith to be a persevering faith. He wants Jairus to believe that not only can he heal the sick, but that he can even raise the dead. In fact, he needs to believe that that God's timing is always the best. I think to trust in God truly, to have faith in God's care, means accepting His timing. And if you follow Christ for for any matter of time, you will, I think, perhaps be able to testify that His timing sometimes confounds us. Doesn't it? Right? It certainly doesn't work according to my timing. I don't know if He does in yours. But even when he, he doesn't, he wants us to trust him. I think he's looking over Jairus' head and he's looking at you this morning and me this morning, and he says, in the midst of painful delays, trust me. I, I will not be hurried, but trust me. Now, he is not saying, listen, uh, trust me, you know, I'm not going to be hurried, uh, but I love you anyways. That's not the point. It's not, uh, don't hurry me, but I love you. You need to know I love you, but I'm not going to be hurried. No, he is saying to him, I will not be hurried because I love you. I love you, therefore I will not be hurried. I know what I am doing. I know what I am doing. And so I tell you, Christian, if God seems painfully late in your life. If it seems like there is malpractice in your life, it is because he has something very important to teach you. Something that you probably are not even aware of. That has been certainly my experience, right? Have there not been times when you have pleaded the urgency of your need before God and the blessing has been delayed? Maybe, maybe it's happening right now and you have discovered afterwards that God's timing was far better and far, far more wise and far more helpful than your own timing. He is, after all, the eternal son of God. he is after all infinitely wise he does after all love you more than you will ever know and you should therefore stop insisting on your timing you don't know all the facts you don't know what he's doing and if you insist on your timing if you're con- constantly getting annoyed with God because he's not doing what you want him to do when you want him to do it you will not feel loved by him and it will be your fault you're constantly going to be raging against His plan for your life. And He's looking at Jairus. And you need to hear Him say, I'm doing something in your life, in this situation that you do not know yet. You must trust Me. You must believe. Only believe, He said. Believe what? That she's not dead? No. She's, she's dead. But believe that with Jesus no one is hopeless. He has power over death. So did he believe? Look in verse 51. And when he came to the house, right? So he takes him home. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't do what they said. Leave him alone. No, he takes him. And they come home. What do they find? A funeral. Verse 51. He uh, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And so this is the first time that he's going to do this training on these, these inner apostles. They'll become very prominent when we get to chapter 9. And he he brings them in In the midst of all these mourners, verse 52, And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And so there's there's this funeral going on, right? There's The professional mourners have have come. They would have known this. They would have heard it before they have even seen it. The wailing, the crying, the the morbid flute playing. I trust because of this man's position and the fact that this was a child who died, this would be a, a big commotion. The funeral, therefore, has already begun. The flute players have been brought in. The mourners have been assembled. And Jesus says to them, Why are you crying? Stop crying. She's not dead. She's just sleeping, He says. He knows their response in verse 53. And they laughed at Him, knowing that she was dead. So their weeping turns into this bitter laughter. begin to mock Him. They begin to ridicule Him. They know dead, right? She's cold. She's not breathing. She's dead. By the way, notice that the ancients are no more gullible than you and I are. They're not thinking, oh, okay, well, here he comes. He's going to raise the dead. Cool. That's all. Watch this. They, they, they just mock him. They say there's nothing that can be done about them. They scoff at him. In fact, Mark tells us in his account that he put them outside. So they're all in the house at this time and Jesus himself has to put them outside as they laugh at him and mock him. I wonder if he took a couple by the sh- shirt collar or, or a put a, a, a kind of a nudge them with a foot in the behind to get them out of the house so that he could begin to do the work that he wants to do in In the midst of this ridicule and this mocking by the way just as a a kind of a footnote you need to continue to believe in Jesus when people scoff at you people still laugh at Jesus and they will laugh at those who follow him you believe in hell you believe in the devil you believe in heaven you, you believe in a a crucified Jewish peasant and a God you cannot see that's what you're basing your life on in this day and you must say yes that's true even in a mocking world, it was mocking back then. It will mocking, mock us today. And Jesus comes and calls for us to believe. Believe in Him because He is powerful and compassionate. Notice once everyone is out of the house, what the Lord does in verse 54, but taking her by the hand, He called, saying, Child, arise. Now I want you, if you can, to put yourself in that scene, what that must have been like. As you enter this home with Mom leaning over the lifeless body of her daughter, sobbing, heaving. And all of a sudden, your husband shows up with this preacher you've never met before, and he begins to kick everybody out of your house. And then maybe, perhaps, he looks at this woman with a look of confidence as he approaches this girl's body, and he gets down on his knees and grabs her cold, dead hand, and he speaks to the dead girl, saying, Child, arise. In the other versions, we actually have the Aramaic phrase, Talitha kum. Talitha is the Aramaic word for little one. It's a colloquial term. In today's language, we would, call, we would say it's sweetheart or honey. Kum is the word get up. And so Jesus Christ sits down next to the dead girl and takes her by the hand and says to her, Sweetheart, it's time to get up now. You, you've done this many times, haven't you, with your kids? Right? I, you know, I think about my son Ezekiel, who's four, and he's taking a nap, and I, I love to, you know, wake him up by crawling into bed with him and just kind of rubbing his head and cuddling down, and eventually his, his eyes begin to flutter, and, and you say, it's time to get up, Zeke. And he says, okay, dad, And and off, off he goes. That's what Jesus is doing, but there is a difference, isn't it? He's not waking her up from the nap. He's raising her from the dead. In fact, he said she's not sleeping. Oh, she's not dead, she's sleeping. He's not denying that she's really dead. What he is saying is that raising the dead is as easy for him as it is for a parent to wake a child from a nap. And I know I point this out a lot, and I probably will do every time I see it, because I want you to see that Jesus is not thinking, okay, this is a tough one, but I think I can handle this. He is not saying, okay, uh, listen, I-, I need some room. I need to think about this. How are we going to do this? He is not sweating. He is not praying even. He is not rolling up his sleeves. He is just getting down and, and, and waking her up as he faces the greatest foe that he has faced up to this point, right? We We've seen him face down a hurricane. We've seen him face down an army of demons. But this is an undefeated foe. The unconquerable enemy of the human race is death. And he simply says, honey, get up now and And she does verse fifty five and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat and you imagine the color returning to her, and the, her, her heart beginning to beat again, and her body began to warm, and her eyes begin to flutter and uh, to focus, and, and she opened her eyes and, and who 's the first person that she sees it 's Jesus, and who 's the first person she touches, and it 's Jesus holding her hand and And who's the first voice she hears? It's Jesus. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's doing more for Jairus than he could ever have imagined. He's not just taking care of his need. He's taking Jairus from believing that Jesus is this powerful healer to seeing that he is the resurrection and the life. The delay, therefore, that he put Jairus through is simply the doorway to the greatest spiritual discovery that Jairus would ever have. He's bringing out that faith, he, and he wants to do that to you today. He wants to bring out that faith in you. In fact, I look in this story and I can't help but think this is a preview of what one day will happen to me and what one day will happen to you. That one day after death, you too will be awakened, will you not? And who shall you see but the Lord Jesus Christ? And who shall be embracing you but the Lord Jesus Christ? And who shall you hear but the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? The Lord. Does it not? Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. This is what will happen to you though, through the, your faith in Christ. If you trust in Christ. But what about those who don't? Uh, I wonder, for those who are here this morning and you're not a Christian, what, what do you think about death? I, I, it seems to me that this world has two basic strategies to deal with death. And it's either to avoid it, just, just not deal with it at all, and not think about it, or or just to accept it like it's some inevitable part of this natural world, but but those strategies sometimes prove insufficient. It was George Steinbrenner, the former owner of the New York Yankees who died in 2010, famously said as a younger man, I never have a heart attack, I give them. It was in a 2004 article, six years before he died, that he talked about his growing fears of his own death. In fact, he collapsed in a friend's funeral and was asked about it he said it makes you think you're that close you wonder if you're all right so he didn't know if he was if he was all right do you know do you know what will happen to you after you die do you know for sure what will happen on the other side of eternity you see as christians we we don't accept death as natural we, we, we believe death has, means something has gone terribly wrong with this world. Right? And, and we, we believe death is a tyrant and it stalks this world with great authority. But we believe, as this passage teaches us, that Jesus has more authority here. Do you, I hope you see that authority in Christ. We're gonna see it more as we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus goes to the cross and dies and three days later, what does he do? But he rises from the dead and he does so on his own authority. The Bible says that, that, uh, our Lord declared in John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own authority. I have authority to pick it up right back up again. And, and He did. He has that authority. He, he has the final authority. You see, for the Christian, cancer doesn't have final authority. And, and Alzheimer's doesn't have the final authority, and car accidents don't have the final authority, and heart failure doesn't have the final authority, and ALS doesn't have the final authority. Death does not have the final authority. Jesus does. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have it all. I am the resurrection and the life, he proclaimed. In fact, it was at at the death of his beloved friend, Lazarus, that he turned to his sister and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And if you, whoever believes in me shall never die. And then he looks her in the eyes, in the face of the death of her brother, and says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? And she proclaimed, Yes, Lord, I believe You are the Son of God. I believe You are the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? You can reach out and grab hold of Christ even now. He who has died upon a cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for all the sin of those who would trust in Him and three days later rose from the dead victoriously, now says you may come to God, you may be reconciled to God, not by your good works, not by your righteousness, not by your church attendance or religious rituals, but simply by yielding your life to me in faith. If you will bow your knee to me and place your faith in me as Savior and Lord, I will give you this peace that I gave this this woman. Scripture tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead... We will be saved. Will you not reach out and lay hold of Jesus even now? Grab him. In fact, when I consider the story as we end our time this morning, I think about my, my children. And when they, they get scared, you know what they do? When daddy's around, uh, they, they reach up and grab daddy's hand. Right? In a crowd of people perhaps they don't know, or maybe in the dark they'll, they'll want to, to reach up and, and grab, grab my hand. You, you remember that when you were a little kid? How you would reach up and, and grab dad's hand or maybe mom's hand and you, you would grab their hand and, and you would feel like totally safe. You would feel totally like everything was okay. Of course you were absolutely wrong, right? Right? There's no, how, no matter how great your parents are, they can't protect you from every foe. And Sometimes your parents are bad or at least foolish. But Jesus comes and he, and he wants to be this perfect parent who has us by the hand, who, who brings us through the darkest night. The, the very hands, the Bible says, it scatter the, the stars in the heavens like sand upon the seashore. Wants to take hold of our hand. Wants to grab you by the hand and lead you through this life. Why would you therefore ever doubt Him? Why would you ever hurry Him? Why would you ever say no to Him or want to hide from Him? In fact... You know how it is that he holds your hand even now, Christian? All all you have to do is look at his. That hand was nailed to a cross. And it bears the marks, even to this day and forevermore, shall bear the marks of his power and his love for you. In fact, he had to let go of his father's hand, didn't he? So that he might grab hold of yours. As one has said, he lost his father's grip so that he might embrace you. And I tell you, if he lost his father's hand so that he can save you, oh, therefore he, he will never, never, never let you go. Never. He's got you forever. Right? And, and so don't hurry him. Don't hide from him. Don't say no to Him. Don't doubt Him. Take Him by the hand and say, You are my Lord. You are the Son of God. And I will follow You wherever You lead me in faith. Because You are worthy of it. Father, we're thankful that Christ is worthy of our faith. Even though life can be painful and our hearts are at times broken, He is working in the midst of it for our good and for Your glory. May we learn to trust Him. I know there are friends here. I know some of their situations and many I do not that are in the midst of trial or are just growing tired of waiting. Will You help them even now based upon the authority of the very Word in which You have given us To grow in their trust in You. To yield it to You. Bow their knee to You once again. Say, I'm not going to doubt You in the midst of this. And my faith is going to grow through it. Do this good and kind work in their life. Father, I know it's painful. But it is for their good. Will You help them to believe that? We pray for our friend or two here this morning that has come and does not know Christ has not yielded their life to Him. Will you even move in their heart this very moment? Will you cause them to be born again that they may bow their knee to Jesus, placing their faith in Him, that they too might know the peace He offers? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.